We pray these things. Amen. Thank you so much. You can be seated. If you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to take them and turn them to the Old Testament book of Lamentations. Uh, While you're doing that, uh, I want to let you in on a little experience I had a couple of years ago. I went backpacking in Wyoming with several guys, most of them from this church here, um, way up high in the Wind River Mountains, beautiful place. We had a seven mile uh, or more hike in front of us. It was all uphill. And uh, we ended at over 10,000 feet, so the air was pretty thin the whole way. And uh, you're carrying a 40-plus pound pack on your back. Now, at the beginning of the hike, none of that matters, of course, because you've been planning this for months, and you're like, we're here, this is exciting, yay! Hike, sweat, pain, it's awesome! Six miles into the hike, you're not really quite so jazzed, you know? I mean, we are dragging, you know, a few hours later. Gorgeous scenery. I mean, it's just a great time. But I mean, we are like dying. You're, you're sucking air and there's not as much oxygen in the air and you're tired and you're like, honestly, haven't we gone seven miles yet? You know, when are we going to get there? And everybody's kind of starting to flag a little bit. And we passed some hikers who were coming down from the lake that we were going to stop at and camp at for the week. And so we're asking them like, how far away is that? And they're like, oh yeah, we think we know where, you, where you're going. And it's like, you know, they were guessing maybe a half mile at the most. I'm like, wow, when you've been going over seven, half mile doesn't sound so bad. So that was just like, it was like a drink of cold water for my soul <laughs> to hear that. It was like a ray of hope. Like, honestly, we're almost there. And it really helped me kind of give a burst of, I don't know, I'd call it a burst of energy. I think it was just a burst of determination to like, I got to get there, you know, just tune it all out, shoulder the pack and just keep plowing. So I got ahead. I was way ahead of Kurt, by the way, for those of you keeping score, just so you know, he was significantly lagging behind, but I don't know if that's because he's old or what. But anyway, um, just wanted you to know that. And we're all charging up there and it's like, am I going to make it? Am I going to make it? That kind of picture, I think for all of us, no matter how bad we were feeling, was like, okay, we're almost there. Let's keep going. It was encouraging. Uh, It gave us kind of a shot of focus, a shot of hope. One thing it didn't do for any of us was take one ounce of weight out of our packs. Uh, The knowledge that we were maybe within a half mile of our destination didn't uh, cause any of the ache or the pain to ebb out of my whiny muscles, you know, that were all screaming, stop, this hurts. In other words, it didn't make it any easier. Uh, That last half or so mile was every bit as hard as it would have been otherwise. The hope gave me focus and determination and to some level the ability to carry on, but it didn't necessarily make it any less heavy or painful. And I think that's a lot of what the Bible is trying to describe to us here in the book of Lamentations. We're in week four of a five-Sunday look at this Old Testament book that we introduced uh, three weeks ago. And we talked about how the, the book of Lamentations is, uh, is, is lament. That's where it gets its name. And lament is simply giving voice to sorrow. It's when I'm in pain and suffering and I express that verbally to other people, but mostly in, in the context of the Bible, I express it to God. Uh, lament is prayer in pain where we turn to God. That's kind of how the Bible looks at it. And the book of Lamentations is made up of these five very carefully crafted lament poems. And so the first week we talked about what those all were and how the structure of the book works and, and the lessons that we can take away from it. And then each one of the last a few weeks, we've had an opportunity to take one of those lessons and look at it a little bit more closely. A couple of weeks ago, when we saw chapter two. We saw that the main point that sorrow itself should be expressed 
to God. We'll talk about that a little bit more this morning. Sorrow should be expressed to God. Last week in chapter 3, by far the longest and the most hopeful of these otherwise kind of dark lament poems in the Bible, we saw that Christian sorrow or Christian grief is always anchored in hope. We know that that end is coming, and so the pack is still heavy, but we have that hope that sustains us. And now today in chapter 4, we're going to see that grieving with hope is still grieving. And that's where Lamentations chapter 4 takes us. What we're going to do this morning is just slightly different than normal, not a whole lot different than normal, but we're going to walk through Lamentations chapter 4, pointing out a couple keys and and some things I think we can learn from this along the way as per usual. But then uh, toward the end of of the time in the Bible, I'm actually going to ask a couple friends to come up on the platform with me and we're going to start to kind of unwind the sermon series. We'll begin that today and then end it next week when we end the sermon series. Just looking at what can we take away from a book like this practically in modern American Christian contexts. So that's where we're headed this morning. If you've got your Bibles, please turn them to Lamentations chapter 4 where we see another lament poem, also 22 verses long, just like four of the other five. And it starts out in language that sounds very similar to the first couple poems. So if you were with us a couple weeks ago, some of this will sound familiar. Let me read the first seven or eight or so verses just so we can get a sense of how this works. The prophet Jeremiah, the likely author, is lamenting the siege of Jerusalem and the overthrow of Jerusalem by the Babylonian armies in 586 BC. And a lot of the starvation that took place during that siege, some of the cannibalism, the death, the destruction, just a horrible time. That's what these poems are lamenting. How the gold has grown dim, how the pure gold has changed. The holy stones lie scattered at the head of every street. The precious sons of Zion, worth their weight in fine gold, how they are now regarded as earthen pots, the work of a potter's hand. Even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like the ostriches in the wilderness. The tongue of the nursing infant sticks to the roof of its mouth for thirst. The children beg for food, but no one gives it to them. Those who once feasted on delicacies perish in the streets. Those who were brought up in purple now embrace ash heaps. For the chastisement of the daughter of my people has been greater than the punishment of Sodom, which was overthrown in a moment, and no hands were wrung for her. Her princes were purer than snow, whiter than milk. Their bodies were more ruddy than coral. The beauty of their form was like sapphire, but now their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized in the streets. Their skin has shriveled on their bones and has become dry as wood. In the first half of this poem, we encounter a powerful pattern of what a lament prayer can look like. Certainly not the only way it can look, but a pattern for how lament looks. In these verses, the poet takes us into a lament in which he does three things that are fairly clearly recognizable. And you see these in some of the other lament poems too. And there's, there's, I think, a helpful pattern here. First of all, he describes what's happened to him. This is in prayer before God. Uh, Secondly, he describes the impact that that's had on him and the people. And, And lastly, he describes where that's kind of left him, how he feels about that. Just taking each briefly in turn, it's interesting to see him spend so much time describing historical facts to God, right? 
Um, he talks about, you know, the verse 1, the holy stones are lying scattered at the head of every street. Uh, and, and, and verse 4, you know, the, the tongue of the nursing, nursing infant sticks to the roof of its, its mouth for thirst. There's, there's children, he's saying, God, that are like begging for food in the streets because the city is besieged and we're all starving to death. And those that are hoarding food are so desperate for their own lives, they won't even give what little they have to the starving children. I mean, this is horrible. And he's telling God what's going on, which might strike us as kind of weird at first because it's like, is God blind? Does God not know this already? Doesn't God know everything? Why would you take time to tell God what has happened in prayer when God is the last person in the world who needs to be informed about anything? But you see, prayer is never ultimately about informing an ignorant God about what's going on. Prayer is really about walking through all of life with a sovereign God. It's not about informing an ignorant God, telling him something he doesn't know. It's about walking through life with a sovereign God and pouring out my experience and the reality of what's taking place to a God who is in control. Yes, he knows all. And so it may seem kind of strange for the poet to sort of pick up his phone and videotape the siege and then say, God, I've uploaded this to YouTube. Grab some popcorn and sit down. We're going to watch this video. Don't you see what's happening? Of course God sees what's happening. But he pours it out because he's like, God, this is what I'm dealing with. And so he pours it out before a God. He tells him what's happened. And then secondly, he describes the impact on him and the people. This is something he's done before, although he uses a new poetic device here in chapter 4 that we haven't seen yet, and it's the device of contrast. Uh, Particularly in the first half of this chapter, he uses the contrast as a repeated way to describe the impact of what's happened. Uh, really pronounced examples of that. Verse 5, those who once feasted on delicacies, the rich and the wealthy, they now perish in the streets. Their, their wealth and their status has done them no good under these conditions. Those who were brought up in purple, the, the, the nobles and the people who were powerful, they now embrace ash heaps. They're just like everyone else. Verses 7 and 8, her princes, her referring to the city of Jerusalem, even the nobles and the leaders who were once beautiful and impressive people to look at, but now in verse 9, or sorry, verse 8, their face is blacker than soot. They're not recognized. You can't tell that they were once anything special because they're wasting away just like everybody else. You see, it's this, we were this, and it was great, and now we're this, and it's awful. And so the contrast is a way of describing the impact of what's happened on him and his people. Once again, God knows all of this, but he's pouring it out before God. And then lastly, he tells God what happened and describes the impact, but he honestly expresses his emotional state about it. The whole poem is an expression of pain and sorrow at the results of what has happened. God, don't you see children starving in the streets? Don't you see mothers who are so desperate for food that their children are on the verge of death and they'll kill their children and there's cannibalism going on? It's horrible. It is horrible. And he's honest with God about these things. This is not the only way to pray a lament, but it is a pattern of prayer. And I found myself thinking, I don't know how you, if you're a Christian, pray to God when you're in times of trouble, but my tendency is to, if I'm going to talk to God about times of difficulty, offer kind of short, um, brief, summary statements followed up by a vague request for help. God, this is a tough situation. Man, give me wisdom and help me out here. Amen. And then I'm going to go like, put on a movie or grab the ice cream or, you know, pour a glass of wine or something, right? I want to go just like distract myself. 
But the poet here models what it looks like to actually take the time to walk through everything with God in prayer, to rehearse what's happened from his point of view, to describe its impact on his current state of affairs, and to name the emotions involved. That's, that's honest lamenting. And this poem models that kind of wide-ranging prayer for us. And for the poet in particular in this poem, it isn't just the events that have taken place. The second half of the poem picks up the same idea, but the focus shifts a little bit away from what's happened, and it then shifts toward who's at fault. Because there's another layer of lament here. And the other layer of lament is that other people are partly to blame. Specifically, the leaders of the people had let the people down, and that's a partial explanation of the dire straits in which they find themselves. Verses 13 to 16. This was for the sins of her prophets, her, again, referring to the city of Jerusalem personified, and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, the people cried to them. Away, away, do not touch. In the language of the day, that's how they would treat people with skin and communicable diseases. They were ostracized. And this is how now the prophets and the priests were treated by the people because they were so untrustworthy. They were such manipulators. They were so wicked. They were rejected by the people. They became fugitives, verse 15 goes on, and wanderers. And eventually, even the places where they wandered said, we don't want you either. The people said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. Well, it was the Lord himself who has scattered them, and he will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, and no favor to the elders. The prophets and the priests of the city had led the people astray. And he's lamenting that. I mean, back in that day, the prophets essentially were kind of like a link between God and his people. They would speak the words of God to the people, so the people would know what God said. And the priests kind of served to complete the link the other way. They sort of represented the people to God. They would teach the people how you were to approach God appropriately, and then they would receive their offerings and their sacrifices and offer them on behalf of God. And so together, the, the prophets and the priests kind of were sort of a religious ruling class. They, they sort of facilitated the worship of the people to God and the relationship between God and his people. In other words, the people were largely dependent on the prophets and the priests doing their job well in order to stay in fellowship with God. But the prophets and priests had repeatedly let them down. They served themselves. They led the people to worship other idols. They did not teach uh, the people the truths of God's word. They did not speak true things from God. And the poet laments this. Because you see, sometimes we have pain that isn't our fault, uh, isn't the fault of other people. And sometimes we have pain that is. I mean, sometimes I'm in a tough circumstance because, like, I made stupid choices and these are the consequences of my own choices. And we've all been there, Right? And usually, if we're honest with ourselves, we know it. Like, I'm hurting, I'm in a tough way, and it's because of my own choice. I have nobody to blame but myself, and I know it. And that's still bitter, but like, I know who's at fault, and it's me. Then there's other times where I'm in a painful circumstance, and it really isn't anybody's fault. It just kind of is. Like several years ago, when my mother contracted cancer, a disease that she fought for many years and eventually took her life. She didn't do anything to give herself cancer. Nobody else did it to her. It just happened. It does to far too many people. 
in a sin-cursed and broken world. And the sorrow is real and it should be lamented. But, you know, there's one other case in which we're sometimes in pain. Sometimes it's our own fault. Sometimes it's really nobody's fault. But sometimes it's at least partly somebody else's fault. Sometimes we go through hard things because of what other people have chosen. And when that happens, it adds another layer to the lament or maybe another facet to what is uh, lamentable, what should be lamented especially if the pain in question was caused by somebody who is supposed to lead us and protect us and care for us and they themselves have become the source of harm because they either neglected us or they misled us or they directly harmed us. Pain should be lamented whether it's somebody else's fault or not. But we see this additional layer of lament when the very people that God gave us have let us down and that's partly why we're suffering. He laments that honestly before God. The prophets and the priests failed. And it turns out, as you read on in the poem, other people failed as well. Not just the prophets and the priests. Verse 17, our eyes failed, ever watching vainly for help. In our watching, we watched for a nation which could not save. We know from reading the prophet Jeremiah that Israel had appealed to Egypt, uh, just as a historical fact, during this time of the Babylonian siege. But the Babylonians drove the Egyptians off because they were stronger. And so the Egyptian army never made it to Jerusalem to come save the Israelites like they had wanted them to. And so the poet pictures himself and the people standing on the walls of Jerusalem looking out at the surrounding Babylonian um, siege and hoping that they're going to see salvation in the form of the Egyptian army coming up over the rise to fight for them. And they're looking and they're looking and the horizon stayed empty. It never came. And every day that passed and they were hoping the Egyptians would show up, hope dies until eventually they realize they're not coming. They're not coming. We wanted, we reached out to them. We wanted them to help us and they weren't able to or they chose not to or you see that too adds another layer to lament. When the people that we reach out to for help, the people that we think should help us or are supposed to help us let us down either because they're not able to or we perceive that they're not willing to, it adds another layer to the pain. We lament when our experts and the people that we turn to for help sometimes can't offer it. And the doctor can't find a cure. The insurance company denies the claim. The court rules against us or rules for the perpetrator of a crime. That adds a whole other stab of sorrow and pain to everything else that's being lamented. He pours it out before God. The prophets and priests had failed them. Other nations and other people had failed them. And lastly, from the perspective of the poet here, their own king had failed them. Down at verse 20. After describing verses 18 and 19, how they were simply dogged without protection by their pursuers, he says, verse 20, the very breath of our nostrils the very life breath we have as a nation, the Lord's anointed, that's a reference to the king, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow we shall live among the nations. What's going on here is that the ancient Israelites had put their hope solidly in the Davidic covenant, as we call it. That was God's promise to King David that there would always be a descendant of his, of David, sitting on the throne of Judah and ruling over his people. And through that king, God would bring stability and protection and life and health to the nation. 
Trouble was, the Davidic king that was alive at the time, a guy by the name of Zedekiah, was kind of a godless knucklehead. So many of the Davidic kings had been ever since David. He hadn't led the people to worship God well. He had failed to protect them. And as a matter of fact, he tried to bail out in the middle of the siege. He tried to take some of the soldiers at night and get through the wall and get away from the Babylonian army, but they captured him. And they slaughtered all of his sons before his very eyes as a way to end his kingly line. And then they stabbed his eyes out. The last thing he saw was his sons being slaughtered before his eyes. And then they hauled his half-dead body off to Babylon as a trophy. That was their king. That was their savior. And so he says the guy that was supposed to save us from from the Babylonians fell into their pits and into their snares. Our king let us down. It's a sad and dark poem of lament, although it does end with one glimmer of hope. In verses 21 and 22, Rejoice and be glad, O daughter of Edom, you who dwell in the land of Uz, but to you also the cup shall pass. You shall become drunk and strip yourself bare. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, now once again referring to the Israelites, is accomplished. He, that is God, will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish and he will uncover your sins. That might sound a little vindictive to us at first by modern American standards, but what actually is, is it is, it is hopeful. These last couple of verses are addressed to the Edomites. That's a group that you're familiar with if you know the Old Testament. If you're not, it's a neighboring people that had a long, they lived close to the Israelites and they had a long and contentious and combative history with the Israelites. And when the Babylonian armies came in and annihilated Israel, the Edomites were partying. They were celebrating. They were mocking the Israelites and saying, you guys have always thought you were so good and your God was so special and look at you now. Just rubbing salt in the wounds of their already extensive suffering. And they were sort of partying. They were, they were drinking their joy at Israel's defeat like wine. And so he poetically says, you're going to get drunk on that wine and it's going to be your undoing because your judgment for your sin is coming too. Live it up now, but God will judge you. And in the midst of that, verse 22, he says to us, the Israelites, to his people, our punishment is accomplished and God will keep us in exile no longer. The poet closes by looking forward to a day of deliverance. By knowing that as bad as it is now and as honestly and thoroughly as he has poured out his heart before God in this particular lament poem, he believes that God's judgment won't last forever. As we saw last week from chapter three, he's looking forward to a day when God would make good on his promise to save his people. But to the poet, that promise was just words. It was a promise. He had nothing to hold on to but the character of God. And friends, we are blessed to live at a time when we have been able to see God act in human history to fulfill that promise. Because when Jesus Christ came, the Bible tells us he came as the ultimate prophet. The one who would speak God's words to his people. In fact, he doesn't just speak the words of God to us truly and faithfully. He actually is, John chapter 1 tells us, the very word of God in human flesh. So he is the perfect prophet. He's also the perfect and ultimate priest. 
Not somebody who kind of takes our imperfect offerings to God and kind of makes it work out somehow, but actually, as Hebrews chapter 10 tells us in the Bible, he gives us the perfect offering, himself, his very own life, sacrificed on our behalf to actually atone for our sin and actually reunite us to God forever. He's the perfect priest that will never let us down and doesn't need to keep sacrificing because he's already sacrificed once for all. He's the perfect prophet, the perfect priest. Last but not least, he's the perfect king. The perfect Davidic king under whose rule every promise of God for security and joy and life for his people will be fulfilled. The Bible tells us that in Revelation chapter 21. When he is on his throne, there will be no more sickness or mourning or crying or pain because that old order of things has passed away. He is the one who brings about the kingly reign of God for the good of his people. I mean, there is hope here. There is hope here. Which may take us by surprise because it's clear at the end of the poem. When you start chapter four, it feels a lot like when we started chapter two a couple of weeks ago. And and chapter two is the darkest of the lament poems. There's no hope in it at all. And chapter four sounds really familiar. It's just, it's like really bad and it's really awful. And it was almost as if chapter three didn't exist, right? There's this extensive poem that we saw just last Sunday that was meditating on the hope that suffering Christians have in the steadfast love of God. And it's almost as if chapter three didn't even happen when chapter four starts. It just picks right up the lament as if chapter three wasn't there. But here at the end of the poem, we see that actually the echoes of hope are still there. Yet that doesn't stop him from grieving and expressing that grief and lament. And there's an important lesson here. As we see the book of Lamentations go from the darkest lament in chapter 2 and then rise to the hope of chapter 3 and then come back at us with another dark lament in chapter 4 that has hope in it, we learn that to grieve with hope is still to grieve. the hope that God offers his people in the midst of suffering doesn't necessarily lighten the pack or reduce the pain. But it does give us the energy and the focus to keep going. That is great hope. And yet, it is still grieving. As we begin to wind this sermon series down, I want us to dwell on a couple of things as a church. Um, First of all, how the book of Lamentations can help us right now today when we are experiencing pain and sorrow. That's what I want to talk about for the next few minutes. And then maybe also next week we'll talk about how it helps us help one another in our church deal with grief and sorrow when we are not maybe hurting, but we know somebody who is. To do that, I want to ask a couple friends to come up on the platform with me. So Aaron and Claire, if you guys would come up here, wherever you guys are at, um, we're just going to have um, a conversation together about this topic. Um, We've thought about it, so we have some idea what we're going to say, but this is not scripted. It's a genuine conversation, and we're just going to have it together, and I just kind of want to invite you into it with us together um, just to experience the reality of what we can take away from this in terms of God offering his people hope. And let me just start, for those that don't maybe know you guys as well as I do, um, give us just real quick, like, who you are. So, Aaron, you want to kind of start? Yeah, sure. Uh, Aaron Potratz. I am the youngest elder on the elder team. Uh, I can still say that. Are you younger Um, than Kurt? I am much younger than Kurt, actually, Um, although the gray gives me away a little bit. Um, And also, I am a counselor by trade. I I own a couple of counseling practices, and I see clients there, Um, so I do a lot of um, practical practical counseling with individuals and couples, um, particularly with grief, too. Claire, what about you? Um, Yeah, I'm... Oh, sorry. Are we on? There we go. 
Um, yeah, I'm Claire Stites. I've been going to Harvest now for 23 years, and I'm younger than both of these guys. Uh, <laughs> sad to say it, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess I'm, uh, I've been going, like I said, I've been going here for 23 years um, since I was born. Uh, in, um, I'll, I'll get into a little bit of the story later, but the reason I'm up here is because I've gone through um, a few losses in my lifetime, the most prominent being uh, the loss of my father, eight years ago, April 21st, um, and he, oh, sorry, I didn't think I was getting emotional, but, um, <laughs> what a place to do this, right? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> but, um, yeah, my parents both sang on worship team here. I, uh, I grew up playing with little blocks down on the floor. And um, for the last couple of years now, I've been volunteering in a ministry called Grief Share. And I'll get into that a little bit too. But that's just a little bit about. Let's start there, Claire. Um, like from this process so far, it's been many, many years. You've been through lots of ups and downs. Um, what have you learned about lament, expressing honest, hard, dark feelings to God? Yeah, um... I think I would start off by just saying that um, the idea of expressing pain or grief to God was not easy. Um, I think we chatted a little bit earlier about um, I had this idea for the longest time that as a believer, as a, as a firm believer in Christ, you you, you got to have everything together that God's going to do what God's going to do, so you just got to trust him and you just got to go and just be okay with it. And that was my mindset for a long time. So... Um, but what I learned was that the farther that I went from, from God and from trusting him, the farther I went from, from healing. Um, so that, I guess that just to start that off a little bit, but I guess, you know, through it all is that I've been continuing to learn that God uses every single broken piece. And I didn't, it took me a long time to learn that. Um, I really didn't start grieving the loss of my father for about four or five years, um, and I think part of that was just coming to the point of saying, God, this isn't how things were supposed to turn out. This wasn't the story that I had written. Um, and you come to a place where you just have to say, all right, God, this is, this is your story. Mm. This isn't mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that's good. Said. We talk a lot, Aaron. I want to start this question with you. Um, about stages of grief, um, a pattern, it almost sounds like, that you might expect people to go through in a linear, predictable fashion. At least I kind of hear that when I hear the word stages. Um, is grieving something like the loss of a beloved dad linear? Does, does that look the same for everybody? Do you get through it? Is it over at some point? What'd you say? Yeah, that's a great question. I think that's something a lot of people struggle with because um, I think a lot of Christians particularly want to do things the right way, and they think that God has prescribed a right way to do that. I think, um, so Kubler-Ross is this lady that invented or came up with this idea of stages, and I've heard it said that it's less of stages and more like states of being, um, denial, anger, bargaining, uh, depression, and then acceptance. So the way I've always thought about it is that it's like moving into greater acceptance. You start out with not very much acceptance and you're moving into greater acceptance over this loss 
of this isn't the way it was supposed to be or this isn't the way I wanted it to be. And that's, that's a wrestling process with God. I think about Jacob who was wrestling with, uh, with God and, you know, ultimately he learned that, okay, I just have to accept that this is the way it is. And that's a really difficult process to go through. You kind of go in and out and of different states of being. And when you get all the way through, you might start back again with another element of your grief or your loss, your mm-hmm. suffering and pain. And it doesn't mean that you've lost any of that progress. It just means that you're working through it and peeling back um, layers like onions. And that's probably why it's so difficult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's exhausting. Yeah. And I think with those stages, too, um, as I mentioned, I, I volunteer in a ministry called Grief Share. And a lot of the questions are, you know, when, when I get to the acceptance stage, does that mean that I'm done? And mm-hmm. it's like, no, because you could go from stage one to then step five and then go back to one again. So, it, you know, like you said, it's not, you know, just step by step. I think they, get, they can all happen all at once and then back to the beginning, too. And I will say it does get easier um, as you grow into acceptance, but you're never really the same afterwards, mm-hmm. and that's actually kind of okay. Which is kind of the ending question, like, is it ever over and I'm fine? Well, yes and no, right? Yeah. Um, we, we've talked a little bit about hope quite a bit last week in this series and this idea that hope for Christians is a part of it. And I think, as you mentioned a moment ago, that's maybe where we get a little hung up. How does hope work and not? How have you guys either personally experienced or had experience helping other people, other Christians experience hope in the midst of grief? Like, how does that, how does that work? How do I hold on to hope when, let me ask it this way, how do I hold on to hope as a Christian when the reality of um, what's defining my current experience is sorrow. Yeah, um, I've come to realize that um, I think one of the most painful parts of that process is being alone. And a lot of people, I think, struggle with um, pain and suffering um, because they're afraid that if I go through this, I'm going to get swallowed up by it, and then I'm not going to know how to get out of it, and I'm going to feel alone. God's not there, or I don't know where God is, or maybe God even turned his back on me. And so the further you get buried into that process, I think the farther from hope that it can feel But the reality is that you actually go into the face of the pain and the sorrow, and that's exactly where God is. Um, You realize in that process that um, sin and death and pain, they have limits. Um, They have an end. They must have an end because death is a finite thing. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that God is infinite. God is endless, and his love goes on and on and on. And so where death ends life and hope really truly begins. And so through that process, God doesn't promise to deliver us from suffering, but through it. And that's the ultimate treasure, I think, is that through all that pain and suffering, you find God, and God is there, and he's like an oasis. He's a refuge, and he ultimately is the treasure. He's the greatest thing, and when you find him there, you realize, ah, this is what my soul really longs for. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would just add to that, and just kind of going back to the point of God doesn't, you know, I mean, he uses every single broken piece, and God doesn't waste anything. Um, and I think that that's hard to think about in the in the midst of, like, the extreme, you know, the extremeness of the suffering when you're right in the middle of it. But um, coming out on the other side of it, being like, oh, I see how God used me um, in these ways. Um, and I think that that kind of re-gives a purpose to people's lives when they feel like their purpose is now gone from, you know, whatever mm-hmm. that might have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So another question um, is, I'm going to ask this directly because I think I never would have said this directly myself, but I think it's been a confusion for me. Curious what you guys think. Is lament um, the expression of fear, pain, anxiety, whatever, to God, is that a sign of weakness? Either weak faith 
like I don't trust God enough, or maybe just weak personally, something's wrong with me, other people seem to be able to get through this and I can't, what would you say to a Christian who felt like, hmm, if I just pour all this out to God, I don't know, maybe that says something bad about me. Okay. Yeah, um, I think maybe you said it here in the sermon, or maybe it was earlier, um, but, but lamenting is kind of like speaking the truth to ourselves and to God. Um, so I, I see lament as being honest about what we really feel, what we really think, and what we believe is going on. And I think that's really powerful because, for example, if you have a, a, a statement in your pain, your grief, that says, this is not my fault, this happened to me, and it's nothing that I did, um, but I have to suffer. Um, that feels like it's not fair, and that's okay. You know, like the, the poet um, expresses in Lamentations, that's important for us to get off our chest, to say honestly, but we can't stay there. We have to move on from that um, in the right direction toward the right place. So I think lamenting is really good. It's important because it, it shows us what we really think and feel, but it also reveals a lot of our true heart and our, a lot of ourselves and what we really think and believe about ourselves, of the world, God, and our expectations. Mm-hmm. Which is probably why it's important to do it before God, right? Absolutely. <laughs> because there's a lot and of And other heart. people. Yeah. yeah, and other people as well. But, um, but, but often, really, before God. I mean, to be able to say, like, yeah, this is what's going on, and now that I've said it, I've now said it, I'm open before you got into it anyway. Um, but I appreciate your point about it maybe being, uh, it was expressed to me recently that it's a... Um, a way of, of, of speaking the truth to ourselves or avoiding denial. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a friend many years ago who was lamenting the loss of a, of a teenage son. It was just a tragic situation. And sometime into that um, grief process, uh, he was encouraged by a counselor with the thought that, you know, um, to, to deal honestly with how you're feeling is like, it feels like you're walking into a darker night, but that's the quickest way to dawn, you know, rather than running from it, it's to run through it and get to, you know, and that was helpful for him, and that came to mind with that. I don't know that he, it helped it reframe it for him that um, the desire to avoid the bad feelings isn't a lack of faith, it's actually simply just trying to run away from what's really going on. If I pour it out to God, God can meet me there and work there. Yeah, I think too that, um, I think sometimes we think that, like, okay, if I just if I just power through it and if I just continue on, that the grief will go away or you know whatever it is, the pain will go away. But the fact of the matter is, if you don't if you don't talk about it or you don't deal with it, grief affects your life in many other ways. That could be your health, um, or it could be maybe now you're quick tempered or quick to be angry with people, whatever that might be. So it manifests itself in other ways. It'll follow you wherever you go. Um, so. It's, it's almost like a weakness if you don't <laughs> talk about it or um, discuss with somebody else or talk with God about it. Yeah. And one of the best phrases I've heard on this is that grief is like a desert that must be crossed by foot. There's mm-hmm. no shortcut. Mm-hmm. You can't take a helicopter and fly across it. You just have to walk it. Okay. So last then question for each of you. Um, ask one of those huge questions you can't possibly answer in 30 seconds and then ask you to answer it in 30 seconds. How's that? Um, um, what are some very practical things? How do you get across on foot? Like, what are some very specific practical things, knowing there's no one set formula, but, like, how can we be very specific about what do I do if I want to lament well as a Christian? Yeah, so um, just practically speaking, I think um, there's a few important things that I noted. Um, just expressing the raw emotions. You know, if I feel like this is unfair or if I feel like I need to blame somebody, express that. So express the raw feelings. Um, reflect on those, um, so get some distance from it so that you can actually see what you're thinking and feeling, um, and then um, make some personal adjustments 
in response to that. Um, there's lots of different ways you can do that. I just jotted down some things like journaling, listening to music, writing music, um, doing physical activity can help us to kind of express stuff. Even like exerting energy is good. Um, talking with other people is really helpful just to get all of that like internal stuff external so that we can see and interact with it. Um, and I guess from my perspective, just trying to find people to, to speak with. So the first thing, it's important to talk to somebody, whether or not that's a, that's a counselor or a close friend. Um, but alongside of that, trying to find somebody or a group of people that have had a very similar experience. So if you've gone through death, find a group of people that are also going through death. If you're going through divorce, talk with people that are going through um, divorce. Uh, off the top of my head, Grief Share, as I mentioned, that's the ministry that I work in. It's a small group setting where people come uh, once a week and we, we talk about the hard topics surrounding um, grief and through loss of a significant other. Um, another could be Divorce Care, that's another organization, or ARMS, that's an abuse recovery ministry. Um, aside from that, I think my last point is, and this is just a quick little illustration, but I'm sure some of you guys have heard of this, but there's like a there's a guy in his in his house is flooding and um, a guy comes by in a rowboat and says hey man I'm here to get you out and he said no that's okay God's gonna save me I got it and the fl- floodwaters continue to rise he's up on top of the roof and um, policemen in a boat come by and they're like hey man let's go and he's like nope that's okay God's gonna save me I'm all right and the last thing is a helicopter and a helicopter comes and they're waiting and he's like that's okay God's gonna save me well the house fills up with water the guy ends up in heaven he goes God why didn't you save me he said. I sent two boats and a helicopter. <laughs> and I think that that's just a perfect illustration that I think sometimes we're, we're waiting for this like big thing to happen of God to come down and just wipe everything clean and make everything great. But sometimes I think God uses other people, whether that's counselors um, or pastors or mentors or even just like little small things to help bring us up out of it. So don't be... Um, don't be so quick to, to cast people away because they might just be the very thing that you need in the moment. That's really good. Guys, I wish we could go on for all afternoon. We can't, but thank you both for joining me up time. here and being honest um, and, and very real and maybe helping us think it through. And here's what we're going to do now. I'd like to ask the worship team to come back up. They're going to close our service with some singing. But as we were talking about this weekend uh, in our um, staff meeting this week, we all thought it was really important to be available for one another. So what we're going to do after the service is we've got quite a few people who are going to be down here in the front rows. In fact, um, our, many of our elders and ministry staff um, are going to be there, some of their wives and other people. We've got a couple up in the balcony, I think. Uh, um, Sandy is going to be up there uh, along with Dan. And there'll be people just right down here in the very front rows, which hardly anybody ever sits in, so you'll know who they are. Um, Aaron and Claire will be here as well. And if you have, even during some of the singing, if you'd just like somebody to come pray with you about something, that's totally fine. But especially after the service, we're going to be hanging out here in front. So if you don't want to talk with us, if you can kind of move your conversations out to the atrium, that'd be awesome. And we're just going to be here to connect with one another, um, care for one another as best we can. And right now, I want to invite you to stand, and we're going to sing in praise to our God who deserves our worship. <laughs>